I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Unlike COVID-19, monkeypox is not a new virus. We've known about it for decades. We have treatments, we have a vaccine, we have everything. And yet, we're still struggling to contain this. The global monkeypox outbreak represents a public health emergency of international concern. Here's the thing. There's something different about this monkeypox outbreak. And while we know it is different, we don't know exactly how just yet. And in the meantime, cases are rising. The good news is that so far there have been no fatalities. The bad news is that on top of its symptoms and its spread, this outbreak poses a difficult public health challenge. Because when a virus is attacking a particular community, a community that already faces discrimination. How do you walk the line between making the facts plain and obvious and available to everyone who needs them to protect themselves without increasing the stigma of that community in the general public? It's not easy. Not much about viruses and public health is these days. Which is why we'll also talk to our guest about what it means to be an expert in emerging viruses when the viruses keep emerging. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk is an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. He is also Canada Research Chair in, yes, Emerging Viruses. Hello, Dr. Kindrachuk. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. And I want to begin with the basics here because I'm not sure how solidly the emergence of monkeypox has been covered sort of on a general level. So let's just begin with what is monkeypox? Where did it come from? So, listen, monkeypox was first identified in the late 50s, uh, but originally in, in animals. And we have to appreciate this is at a time when we have variola virus, which is the causative agent of smallpox, also still uh, you know, endemic throughout most of, uh, most of the world. So we, we didn't actually see any human cases of monkeypox until 1970. It's a virus that belongs to the same family of viruses, the pox viridae uh, family and the Earthpox virus genus. Um, so it belongs to the same family as smallpox, variola virus, 
um, cowpox virus and vaccinia virus. Um, so they, they all share some similarities. They're large DNA viruses. They have about 200 genes, which make them ab- abnormally large. Um, but they've been in, you know, in our, uh, I think, eyesight for the better part of 50 years now. Uh, and, and certainly we've heard about, you know, the endemic disease that, that's caused in various areas of Africa. But certainly uh, we're, we're learning about it very quickly on a global platform right now. In terms of that global platform, what are the typical symptoms of monkeypox? And, you know, I'm not, I guess I'm not asking for worst case scenario, but I think we're always thinking about it. What can it do to somebody who's got a bad case of it? This is a great question, right? So we, we have to kind of separate what we're seeing now in, in regards to the global outbreak versus what we've seen in endemic areas. And, and in endemic areas, there, there are two different clades. There's clade one and clade two. Clade one is the Congo Basin clade. Clade two is the West African clade. Those two cause different severities of, of disease. Clade one, the one that we find in mostly in the DRC, um, that you know has about a ten percent case fatality rate. Can cause a very large disseminated uh, pustular rash, which we've seen lots of pictures of. The clade from West Africa can also cause severe disease. Still presents similarly. You get you know lesions on the face that move down to the arms and the hands, legs and feet, and then a little bit on the trunk. And certainly uh, has caused some fatalities, though at at a much uh, lower rate than what we've seen in Central Africa. The current outbreak is very different and distinct, right? So what we're now seeing is really this overrepresentation of cases with lesions within the groin. We're not seeing this you know much larger disseminated rash across the entirety of the skin surface uh, in individuals that are infected, and we also have not heard about fatalities that have been linked directly to this particular clay or clay three, which we're uh, you know, moving towards, towards calling this. Um, so it is fairly distinct. It's also transmitted largely through sexual contact, at least from what we've seen so far with, with cases. And again, we, we have to appreciate, you know, we, we've had 50 years to learn about monkeypox, but there is still this caveat, which is, listen, in, in many cases, we've seen uh, the presentation of cases that had fully disseminated rash, but we don't necessarily know were there other cases that may have been much more limited in severity um, that maybe didn't present healthcare settings or, you know, worries about stigma or being ostracized that right. you know, with genital rashes, you know, people maybe didn't present and it was largely self-limiting. So these are questions we're still trying to address. We're definitely going to talk about the politics of how this is transmitted and stigma in a minute. But first, because uh, I'm interested now that you've introduced this. So what you're saying is this is a new sort of monkeypox. And again, forgive me for asking uh, dumb questions here, but does this mean uh, the disease has mutated? You know, we're definitely uh, familiar now uh, with different strains of different viruses. Like, do we have any idea what's actually happened to this disease? Yeah, so, so we do, right? And again, part of this is, we have to appreciate over the last 10 to 20 years, we've had this massive increase in, in our technological uh, ability to be able to look at you know, viral genomes and understand changes at, at the genomic level, things that we didn't necessarily have before. Right. Certainly right now, what we're seeing with the phylogenetic analysis, where you actually look at the, you know, the different virus isolates that have been found and, and align them based on their sequences, what we're seeing is that this particular uh, isolate that is moving across the globe seems to be somewhat different than either clade one or clade two. So there has been a proposal to actually name this as clade three. It seems to be behaving differently. The question I think still remains of, is it truly distinct? And that's something that, you know, frankly, we, we first of all, we need to get more clinical data 
Um, but we also need things like animal data or uh, data from uh, cell culture studies to be able to tell us on a you know an even playing field are these different clades or are these different isolates behaving differently? And if so, how are they behaving differently? The last time uh, we discussed monkeypox on this program, it was it was a few months ago, and it was kind of uh, as an addendum uh, when we were speaking with Dr. David Fisman about the latest COVID uh, measures. And it was just an outbreak. And we'd had a few cases in Canada. Now the WHO has labeled this a global health emergency. And I feel like I should remember from two years ago what that means. But <laughs> maybe can you explain both? What does it mean as a level of concern? But also, what does it mean practically? Like what happens once that's declared? Yeah, listen, I, you know, I, I kind of carved my eye teeth in the field working in, uh, in West Africa during the Ebola uh, epidemic. And, and so, I, you know, when I, I hear public health emergency, I... I have a, a very specific take, which is, oh, this is something that, that is a big deal that we need to be appreciative of that could expand and could impact not only global health, but also global economies. So with a public health emergency, what we have to appreciate is right now we're, we're at a point where basically WHO has declared this emergency. That hopefully now enables uh, basically uh, increased collaboration amongst world leaders. This certainly should have all leaders of member states you know, working together to try and reduce overall transmission. This should also bring about basically temporary recommendations in regards to how to deal with this public health emergency. And those should uh, essentially be followed by member nations. The biggest thing I think that we need to consider coming out of COVID is that in regards to things like travel restrictions, those need to move through a, a formal process or should move through a formal process through the WHO to you know at least be considered mm -hmm. uh, as to you know the reasonings why th those are potentially being implemented. So for us, from a practical perspective, what a public health emergency should tell us is: listen, what we are seeing is not normal. Uh, this is certainly something that that is different than, than what has previously been seen. It doesn't tell us about what our level of concern should be outside of saying we need to get this contained, and there needs to be a global effort in getting this contained. Specifically, what is Canada dealing with right now? I know we have cases. I know numbers have risen. Uh, what's our situation? That's a good question, right? So we're, listen, we're still seeing cases that are predominantly overrepresented within Quebec and Ontario. We're seeing movement of cases into other regions. We've, you know, I think there's now a dozen cases in Alberta. There were two recently announced in Saskatchewan. I think BC is, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 40, the last time that I looked. Manitoba, we still don't have any cases. Uh, that, that have been reported. But I think what, what we can uh, kind of deduce at this point is based on the tra trajectory we've seen in other countries, cases will continue to increase. And of course, we're seeing overrepresentation within very specific communities on a global level. So that should enable all the provinces to, to work together to try to get messaging out to those communities and appreciate that this is not going to just simply you know, start to plateau and fall off on its own we now need to try to implement uh, a different recommendations and messaging systems to try and, and get this uh, contained. And this is where we get into the tricky part, given stigma, given politics, and given uh, practical public health messaging. So let's talk about it. Who is predominantly catching monkeypox? Yeah, so far, th this, uh, this uh, public health emergency and outbreak has, has really been overrepresented within the men who have sex with men community, which is very different from what we've seen with prior outbreaks of, of monkeypox. And when you look at the cases, you know, initially 
the, the cases that, that were coming in from uh, the UK, Spain, and Portugal a couple of months ago were suggestive of this. But I think there was this, this sense of saying, okay, well, is this going to continue to be the case? Or are we seeing overrepresentation because of a very distinct you know, transmission uh, pattern uh, within a, you know, a particular group or associated with a particular event? And that hasn't panned out. It's been, it has continued to, to transmit within that community. The tricky part here is that we have to appreciate when you look back again, 50 years of, of monkeypox data from West and Central Africa and even from the US in 2003, this is not a virus that is exclusive to the MSM community. This right. certainly is a virus that can move out to others. Right now, it has found a foothold and an uh, area for consistent transmission. So we have to be able to try and get messaging out to the community to say, look, we have a problem. Here are the things we, we need to do and the messaging we need to take and how you know you can get access to testing. But we also still have to consider that some of the rest of the public does still have the, uh, the potential uh, of also being impacted if we start to see movement out into other communities as well. That sounds like a very tricky line to walk with your messaging. I, it is, right? And, and part of this is like this, you know, unfortunately, when you start to look at obviously the overrepresentation within the MSM community, and then we think back to, you know, I, I was born in 77, so grew up during the 80s, obviously very much remember what happened with HIV and obviously how stigmatized that disease was and continues to be. We don't want that same position where now monkeypox is viewed to be as being only an MSM disease. It's not. Listen, people are at risk. We know certainly kids that are uh, that are under the age of eighteen have a higher uh, a higher potential for for severe disease. We know that people that are immunocompromised will also have a higher uh, risk for for severe disease. And by the way, we have ongoing uh, endemic disease in Western Central Africa that impacts all communities. So mm-hmm. we have to we have to find a way of being able to say, here's the situation, but. Here is also uh, the all the data that tells us that this situation could impact and potentially will impact everybody. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. What kind of stigma does it represent that the WHO is only now declaring something a global health emergency that parts of Africa have been dealing with for so long? Is that natural? Is there something going on there? No, this is such a great question, right? And it gets back to this idea of, you know, uh, have we uh, you know, been turning a blind eye for, for too long? Uh, and then once, you know, we start to see an impact on uh, on the global north and in high-income countries, that's when we're, we're willing to pull the alarm. Listen, I, I think that what this should do is hopefully, again, raise the spotlight onto the fact that um, we have diseases that not only are newly emerging, but that have been circulating for many, many years 
but we have uh, really cast a, a blind eye because they weren't impacting us directly. And I think, to me, what this should impart is, yes, there has been a stigma towards West and Central and East Africa, and, and frankly, the, the majority of the continent, for an unbelievably long period of time in regards to infectious diseases. So we have to appreciate if we want to reduce the global burden of these diseases, we want to you know, reduce the economic impact of these diseases. Again, our best defense is investing in preparedness and response in all areas of the world. So I, I completely uh, agree and in solidarity with, with our African colleagues who have uh, called this out and saying, why are we only doing this now? Um, my hope is that in having those voices amplified, that this will change. And I hope that it does bring about change by certainly our, our uh, young researchers and, and young leaders that, uh, that, that are acutely aware of this situation. What does the fact that so far the predominant number of victims have been men who have sex with men done to the efforts to fight and contain this outbreak? Because I imagine, you know, there are definitely negatives to that in terms of messaging and in terms of stigma. There also must be positives in that, like, at least you have a place to start from practically. Well, and, and I think, you know, as kind of an addendum to, to that latter point, one of the things that we have is we have strong community advocacy groups within the MSM community that right. have been impacted by HIV, that have been impacted by stigma, that are taking this on their back and going into their communities and talking openly about it. We, we certainly have had those types of advocacy uh, events happening here in, in Winnipeg that are very much grassroots types of events. We, we need that. We absolutely need that from, from a community level. You know, when we start to think more broadly in terms of you know, how this is going to play out and, and how we look at this, it is this big part of saying, okay, we have the advocacy, we have the messaging. Now we have this, you know, continual concern with access for testing as well as access for vaccines and therapeutics. That is something that we continue to need to have to figure out is how do we get people access to testing? How do we ensure that there's an adequacy of testing? And by the way, how do we also ensure that vaccines or therapeutics are making their way into those uh, overrepresented groups that are being impacted by the disease now? Because you led me right into it. We have vaccines. Uh, what kinds of treatments do we have? How available is the vaccine? Who can get it right now? Who should get it? Yeah, th this is a good question. Listen, I, I am but a humble virologist. And I, I think, you know, the, the second smartest Dr. Kinderchuk in, in my own household. So I, I always, you know, lean back to, to our public health folks and our, our uh, uh, you know, clinical infectious disease folks to, to give us guidance. When I look at this, though, um, one of the things that, that I appreciate is, listen, we, we know that there are there is an overrepresentation of cases in the MSM community. So certainly, uh, I think it makes sense to try and get vaccine access to those groups. We know that that's where the disease uh, continues to spread right now. Certainly in Canada, we know the areas within the country where we are seeing uh, more cases than, than others. So we certainly can divert vaccine to those areas. Um, but we also have to consider healthcare workers. We know that with COVID, that healthcare workers had a big impact. Um, we need to ensure that healthcare workers also are getting access to vaccination as well as people that are, are going to be providing close contact with, with these groups. The problem is, is that for the new vaccine for, for Genios, we don't have a massive supply of this vaccine either. Hmm. And that put us, puts us in a bit of a predicament. The prior vaccine, ACAM 2000, which is the vaccine that, that I got, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, a few, few rounds when I was still at NIH, that vaccine is contraindicated for, for specific groups, in particular those that are immunocompromised, those that have underlying uh, skin issues like atopic dermatitis or eczema. 
So geniosis is a little bit different. You can actually apply that vaccine to those groups that previously had contraindications. We just don't have doses. And that gets into the issue of saying, okay, well, we need to figure out how to combat this from a containment standpoint, from a vaccination standpoint. And by the way, we still have a vaccine equity issue uh, in Western Central Africa, which does not preclude our need to, uh, or shouldn't preclude our need to also get vaccine to those areas where we have ongoing transmission. So you mentioned that in Canada, you expect to see cases continue to climb. What happens next here? What will you be looking for uh, with regards to monkeypox as we move towards the fall? Well, I think the big part is watching certainly what's happening in international areas where they had prior transmission chains uh, before Canada had recognized theirs. Certainly looking at places like the UK, Portugal, Spain, where we've seen you know high presentation of cases. Are we seeing any sort of indications of plateau? Or if we are seeing those, what types of uh, containment procedures have they used? That have helped, and so what? And are we adopting those here? I think for us, it's going to be a, a question of how many cases do we see move across the country out of the, the regions that are predominant right now. And then I think the other question is: Do we start to see movement out of the MSM community and start moving into other communities that that may have a higher impact? You know, certainly, you know, kids are always uh, top of mind, but also those communities where we have people that are immunocompromised. So I think those are going to be the big indicators over even the next few weeks. Dr. Kindrachuk, thank you so much for this. Before you go, I want to ask you um, about your job as a research chair in emerging diseases. There's a lot of diseases emerging right now. Yeah, tell me about it. Uh, you know, the, the, the last few years have aged me about 10 years. Uh, listen, I, you know, my background is, you know, Ebola, influenza viruses, coronaviruses, and pox viruses. So the last couple of years, have been rough just from my standpoint. You know, what for, for us, you know, a big part of this is we have an obligation to the public to be respondent to, to new uh, viruses as they emerge. And that doesn't just mean in Canada, that means uh, across the globe. So we have to be able to shift gears very, very quickly, much as we've had to do with, with COVID and shifting over to monkeypox. We still have COVID work, we still have Ebola work, but now we have to go full throttle to monkeypox. I'm one person, thankfully, I'm supported by a lot of other amazing researchers across Canada that are in a similar predicament. Um, we all work together and we work collaboratively. We work internationally uh, with folks who work with people uh, within uh, uh, you know, vulnerable communities and within the global south. Um, it's, a, it, I, it's my dream job, uh, but it's also a nightmare at many points because you don't get away from it either. Right. Uh, so I, I, I love what I do, but... Uh, I wish that I wasn't having to do all this on a daily basis. And finally, in the true uh, Big Story podcast tradition of asking a doctor who's talking to us about one disease about a new one, should I be worried about the Marburg virus? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, listen, so Marburg virus, uh, again, you know, it, it, listen, this is, you know, Ebola's, you know, potentially, you know, tougher brother. Um, Marburg, we've been worried about for a long time. It first emerged in 1967. It's caused sporadic outbreaks, has a high case fatality rate. Um, I, you know, I, I think, again, it's this idea of what's our level of worry. Our level of worry should be, are we doing anything uh, in regards to investment in surveillance and infrastructure in, in areas that we know uh, Marburg is circulating in? To me, that's the biggest thing. If you have surveillance and you have early uh, warning systems in place, that can reduce your overall impact of, of this disease. So I, I'm worried in the sense that, um, are we missing the boat? 
on being able to, to get these systems implemented. We know that there that the incidence of emerging virus outbreaks is increasing. We need to appreciate we live in their world. It's not them living in our world. So we, we need to do what we can to, to try and, uh, you know, at least bring about a stalemate in, in this uh, trench warfare that we're in. As I always say to doctors who talk to us about diseases, um, this was a pleasure. I hope we don't talk again, but I feel like we will. <laughs> I, I appreciate that as well, Jordan. I also feel the, the same way. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, living the life of an emerging virus expert in 2022. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us anytime. You can find us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can even call us and leave us a good old-fashioned voicemail. The phone number is 416-935-5935. You can get this podcast wherever you like to get them. You can download it. You can subscribe. You can like. You can follow. You can do whatever they let you do, especially review. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.